Section 30 of Prince and Heretic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ricky Chidez. Prince and Heretic by Marjorie Bowen. Section 30. Juliana of Stolberg. A few days after the return of Count Louis de Dillenburg, a notable company was gathered in the large council chamber. It was long since it had served for councils, having for many a day been put to lighter uses, for ball, feast, and family celebration. There was no magnificence save only the magnificence of the high Gothic arches, and no splendor save only the splendor of the windows gorgeous with the lion and billets of Nassau, in blue and yellow, and the twisted lettering of the motto of the house, Ce sera Nassau, moi je A plain oak table, no longer polished and worn to a tint like dark silver, occupied the center of the room. A circle of high-backed chairs, covered with fringed leather and fastened with tarnished gilt nails, surrounded the table. The one near the window was distinguished by arms shaped like twisted dragons, and there sat William of Orange, with a pile of letters and papers in his hand. His dark face, his dark habit were in shadow, against the glowing light of the colored glass. His head was bent a little, and his long brown fingers he absently fluttered over the pages of the documents he held. On one side of him sat Count John and Count Louis, on the other Count Adolphus and Count Henry, while beyond the five brothers were Count Vanderberg, Count Hugenstraten, Count Cullenberg, the Seigneur de Vigiles, and the Seigneur de Cocoville, the French Huguenots. All these gentlemen were young in years and grave in deportment, being indeed weighted with matters of life and death. Two of the Nassau counts, Adolphus and Henry, were little more than boys, the younger being eighteen. His bright locks, his eager ardent look, the charm of his early morning years, made him a pleasant picture as he gazed intently at the prince, to whom he bore so distinct and touching a likeness. The details of the intended raid of the Netherlands were being discussed. In a quiet voice, William had read out the sums at their disposal. Fifty thousand crowns from the great cities of the Netherlands and the refugees in England. Fifty thousand crowns from the prince himself. Ten thousand from Louis. Thirty thousand from Hugenstraten. Thirty thousand each from Cullenberg and Vanderberg. 10,000 by a secret messenger from the dowager countess whom, the desperate mother of the two doomed men, whom and Montigny, who lay one in a Spanish, one in a Flemish prison, ignorant of each other's fate. In addition to this, William placed on the table a list of jewels, furniture, plate, dogs, falcons, pictures, and precious apparel, such as robes trimmed with valuable furs, laces and costly velvets embroidered with jewels. Count John, too, announced that he had pledged his estates to raise a large sum of ready money 
and the Huguenot gentlemen offered both men and gold. We cannot give nothing but our swords, said Henry of Nassau, looking half vexed, half smiling, at Adolphus, who added softly, And our lives. William heard the words. He glanced quickly at his two younger brothers and slightly winced. From the first moment when he had resolved to undertake this tremendous struggle, it had not been the treasure that he had thought of, but the noble lives that might be sacrificed. Before this dark venture on which he was engaging was over, the house of Nassau might be stripped of all its sons as leaves are stripped from a tree and blown uselessly down the wind. And as for those gathered round him now, how many might fall, even in the first shock of battle. As for himself, he had staked everything he possessed on the thick sheets of paper on the table before him, so it named all his property. The sale of this would leave him poor, nay, almost a beggared man. Yet even with all these sacrifices, the total sum raised was barely sufficient for one campaign, since they had to pay mercenaries and support them in a country already desolate and mastered by foreign troops. And it is Alva who is against us, said William. His eyes gleamed as he spoke, the great captain's name, and his voice vibrated with excitement. And beyond Alva are the treasure of Spain, added Cullenberg, glancing at the list of their own poor resources. That, said the prince quickly, is not so tremendous. The treasure of Spain. It will take all the gold of America to govern the Netherlands, as Alva means to govern them. To maintain an army in a country ruined, barren, the trade lost, the wealthy fled. Alva is a poor financier, and he will not obtain much aid from Philip, who looks to see gold pouring from the Netherlands, not into them. To exhaust Alva's resources is but a question of time. But we... Asked Louis, can we wait? If this first attempt fails, can we go on? We can go on until we die, answered William. There is nothing to stop us but the failure of ourselves. There are plenty of men and plenty of money in the world, many who hate Spain and who love the Reformed faith. We do not venture in a little cause, nor a foolish one. Lewis looked at his brother. For me, I shall not fail, save only by my death, he said. I do believe it, said William warmly, and think the same true of all here present. Signors, for yourself, you can answer your cause, your faith, your country, for the house of Nassau, I can speak. He glanced at his four brothers. We shall not hesitate nor turn back nor lay down our arms until these provinces of his majesty be released from the desolation of the Spaniards and from the abomination of the Inquisition or till death free us from our task. He did not speak vaingloriously or boastfully nor with any arrogance or pride but almost sadly and on those present who knew how long he had deliberated how strenuously he had striven to bring the government to reason and moderation. How loath he had been to take up arms against Philip. 
this solemn declaration of his irrevocable decision had a weighty effect. They knew that he had dedicated himself, his brothers, and all the possessions of his famous house to this cause, not with reckless enthusiasm of the adventurer, nor with the hot-headed daring of one who had nothing to lose, but with the serene strength of one who had been regally great, who had owned everything the world can offer, and who had quietly laid down all, rather than become an accomplice to senseless tyranny. He waited for no comment on his words, but selecting a rough map of the Netherlands from the papers before him, laid it on the table, where the bright glow of the window flushed it gold, and indicated with his finger the routes to be taken by the attacking forces, which were to be divided into three under Louis, de Vigal, and de Cocoville while he himself was to wait at Cleves with a fourth contingent to follow up success or cover defeat. De Cocoville by Artois with the French Huguenots and refugees, two or three thousand men, said the prince, glancing at the Frenchman, who smiled and nodded. Hugenstraten with De Vigers, through Juliers and Mainstretch, Louis and Freisland. On the west, all should be in the field by May. He leant back in his chair and folded up his papers. All these expeditions will be desperate adventures, he added abruptly. You, gentlemen, will be taking raw troops and mercenaries against the finest veterans in the world. Yet, men have been victorious before, with bad tools and a good cause. I do not think of failure, answered Lewis, with that eager gaiety that showed so charmingly in him, for he was no ignorant stripling, but a brilliant, experienced soldier. William looked at him in silence. It was in his mind that they must think of failure and meet it often. But now was not the moment for doubt and discouragement, and the native cheerfulness of the prince made it easy for him to assume a calm and hopeful front. With a half laugh, he handed to Louis, Cullenberg, and Vanderburg their several commissions for raising men and loving war against Philip and his men. To prevent the desolation overhanging this country by the ferocity of the Spaniards. To maintain the privileges sworn to by his majesty and his predecessors. To prevent the extirpation of all religion by the edicts and to save the sons and daughters of the land from abject slavery, we have requested our dearly loved brother, Louis of Nassau, to issue as many troops as he shall think needful. So, still preserving the fiction of loyalty, did William defy Philip in terms of courteous submission to his majesty. So he, as sovereign prince of Orange, owning no lord, exercised his right to levy troops and declare war. He had already refused haughtily the jurisdiction of Alva's Council of Troubles and proclaimed that he was only answerable to his peers. The chapter of the Knights of the Golden Fleece and to the Emperor, and now he put himself even more definitely on the side of Philip's enemies. His expression was almost amused as he gave the three counts the formal copies of their commission. His quick mind looked forward and saw that spare, 
pale figure wandering round the half-built Escorial. And his rage when he learnt that the one grandee of the Netherlands who had escaped his far-flung net was likely to strike a blow that would revenge all the others. The council broke up. As the gentlemen left the apartment, the Signors de Vigas asked Count Louis what news from the provinces. The last news a week old is but the same story, replied Louis. Murder, massacre, confiscation. It is believed that the Duchess will retire to Parma, leaving Alva absolute master, as he is indeed now. Cullenberg's palace on the horse market has been confiscated. As a revenge for the conspiracy that was plotted there, added Hugenstraten with a smile. The mass on Parma's wedding day, the banquet of beggars. Cullenberg has paid dear for a sermon and a dinner. Bread Road is paid dearer, said Cullenberg. He is dead, is he not? The great beggar? asked de Cocoville. At Castle Handenburg, answered the Nassau Count a little sadly. He fell into melancholy and drank himself to death, till his great shouting and fury ended in nothing, like a huge wind flowing aimlessly and suddenly dropping. Alas, he would have served us well now. I am sorry that his gaiety and his courage are overlaid with dust forever. It is strange to think that Bredereod is silent at last, remarked Vandenberg, he who laughed and talked so well. The western light of evening filled the old, plain, pleasant castle as the Nassau princes and their guests went down to the chapel where the preacher had already entered for evening service. This chapel, once gorgeous with the beautiful pomp of the ancient faith, was now entirely bare of all ornament. Plain glass filled the windows, which had once glowed with regal colors. The ordinary light of day now entered and lit all the aisles and arches, which had once been obscured with mysterious gloom. A coat of whitewash obliterated the paintings on the walls and pillars and ceiling. Plain rows of benches took the place of carved prédu and tasseled cushions. The pulpit was of simple wood, the seat of the Nassau family directly facing it, and each place a Bible and a prayer book with a broad green marker where laid. Green curtains on brass rods screened off the upper portion of the arches, and green boughs waved against the clear windows. The interior of the church was all colored with this green reflection, which was extraordinarily cool, quiet, and peaceful. When William and his companions entered the chapel, it was already nearly full, most of the household being in their places, and the Nassau pew set the Countess of Nassau, Juliana of Stolberg, her daughters, Magdalena, Juliana, and Catherine, the wife of Vanderberg. Near them were their women. Anne had not come, being literally ill with rage at her husband's decision to sell his property. But René Lemun was there, 
She glanced continually at the four Nassau women, so handsome, so modest, so fine, with her simple attire and princely carriage. She saw that the Countess of Nassau was pale, and guessed the reason of all who were sacrificing to the Protestant cause and to the rescue of the Netherlands. No one was giving more what this lady was. Four splendid sons to the war and peril, a fifth to possible ruin, all her own possessions, the husband of her favorite daughter, the wealth and security of her house, and all her kinsmen. When William and his brothers entered and took their places in the pew before her, she lifted her eyes from her Bible and gazed at them with unspeakable yearning and unspeakable triumph. This was an offering worthy to put before the Lord. These were men fit to be dedicated to his service. The noble, magnificent William, the pride of his name, and famous in Europe, the handsome Louis, gallant, pious, intelligent, and brave, the chivalrous Adolphus, in his healthy, young manhood, Henry, the graceful youth already promising all the splendors of his race, John, resolute, loyal, capable, who had laid down all he possessed at the service of his brother. Their mother's gaze traveled from one to the other of them as they sat before her, and her heart contracted and her lips trembled, as she wondered when she would see them all together again, as she wondered how many would return to her, how many would fall in the struggle on which they were now entering. She did not complain, even in her inmost heart. The touch of sternness that was inevitable with a sincere belief in her austere creed strengthened her and enabled her to be glad and proud that they were all united in a cause she considered sacred. She was prepared to let them go, to lose them, if God willed, one after the other, and neither to murmur nor lament. Yet, how she cared, how she suffered in the midst of her pride and triumph. The pain that shook her as she watched them so young, so brilliant, so pleasant. None present guessed, save perhaps René Lemieux, whose senses were acute with love. The Countess knew for what reason the council had been held today. She knew that in a while now, all would scatter to try the desperate chances of a desperate war, and not by one word would she have striven to hold them back. But as the quiet service continued, as the green glow of the trees was changed to the westering flood of red over those five martial figures who had once been children on her knee, Juliana Astolberg breathed a prayer for them that was a prayer of agony. When the service was over, she lingered a little in the white chapel, now filling with the dusk. Her limbs trembled and her eyes were misty. Her daughter stayed with her, all sad for their brothers, Catherine too for her husband. Each woman thought of the long vista of anxious days before them, days of waiting, days of news, perhaps worse than waiting, days when they would remember, with such poignant pain, this present time of peace. They slowly left the chapel, René behind them, unnoticed in the shadow. In the antechamber, William waited for his mother. Her dark eyes smiled at him. She put out her hand and touched his shoulder. When do you start? She asked. 
in a week or so. We should be all in the field by May. Ah, uh, so soon. She said no more, and she still smiled. But René, the other woman, who loved William, understood with a dreadful sympathy what was being endured by the Countess's brave heart. End of section 30 Recording by Ricky Chides.